This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Today's reading by Alex Foster, www.alexfoster.me.uk. A Journey to the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter 39 Forest Scenery Illuminated by Electricity. For another half hour we trod upon a pavement of bones. We pushed on, impelled by our burning curiosity. What other marvels did this cavern contain? What new treasures lay there for science to unfold? I was prepared for any surprise. My imagination was ready for any astonishment, however astounding. We had long since lost sight of the seashore behind the hills of bones. The rash professor, careless of losing his way, hurried me forward. We advanced in silence, bathed in luminous electric fluid. By some phenomenon which I am unable to explain, it lighted up all sides of every object equally. Such was its diffusiveness, there being no central point from which the light emanated, that shadows no longer existed. You might have thought yourself under the rays of a vertical sun in a tropical region at noonday and at the height of summer. No vapour was visible. The rocks, the distant mountains, a few isolated clumps of forest trees in the distance, presented a weird and wonderful aspect under these totally new conditions of a universal diffusion of light. We were like Hoffman's shadowless man. After walking a mile, we reached the outskirts of a vast forest, but not one of those forests of fungi which bordered Port Gräuben. Here was the vegetation of the tertiary period in its fullest blaze of magnificence. Tall palms belonging to no species longer living. Splendid palmacites, firs, yews, cypress trees, thujas, representatives of the conifers, were linked together by a tangled network of long climbing plants. A soft carpet of moss and hepaticas luxuriously clothed the soil. A few sparkling streams ran almost in silence under what would have been the shade of the trees, but that there was no shadow. On their banks grew tree-ferns similar to those we grow in hothouses. But a remarkable feature was the total absence of colour in all those trees, shrubs, and plants, growing without life-giving heat and the light of the sun. Everything seemed mixed up and confounded in one uniform silver-grey or light-brown tint, like that of fading and faded leaves. Not a green leaf anywhere, and the flowers, which were abundant enough in the tertiary period, which first gave birth to flowers, looked like brown paper flowers, without colour or scent. My uncle Liedenbrock ventured to penetrate under this colossal grove. I followed him, not without fear. Since nature had here provided vegetable nourishment, why should not the terrible mammals be there too? I perceived in the broad clearings left by the trees, decayed with age, leguminous plants, esserini, rubici, and many other eatable shrubs, dear to ruminant animals at every period. Then I observed, mingled together in confusion, trees of countries far apart on the surface of the globe. The oak and the palm were growing side by side, the Australian eucalyptus leaned against the Norwegian pine, the birch-tree of the north mingled its foliage with New Zealand cowries. It was enough to distract the most ingenious classifier of terrestrial botany. Suddenly I halted. I drew back my uncle. The diffused light revealed the smallest object in the dense and distant thickets. I thought I had saw—no, I did see, with my own eyes, vast, colossal forms moving amongst the trees. They were gigantic animals. 
It was a herd of mastodons, not fossil remains, but living, and resembling those the bones of which were found in the marshes of Ohio in 1801. I saw those huge elephants whose long, flexible trunks were grouting and turning up the soil under the trees like a legion of serpents. I could hear the crashing noise of their long ivory tusks boring into the old decaying trunks. The boughs cracked, and the leaves torn away by cartloads went down the cavernous throats of the vast brutes. So then, the dream in which I had had a vision of the prehistoric world, of the tertiary and post-tertiary periods, was now realized. And there we were alone in the bowels of the earth, at the mercy of its wild inhabitants. My uncle was gazing with intense and eager interest. "'Come on,' he said, seizing my arm. "'Forward, forward!' "'No, I will not!' I cried. "'We have no firearms. "'What could we do in the midst of a herd of these four-footed giants? "'Come away, uncle, come. "'No human being may with safety dare the anger of these monstrous beasts.' "'No human creature,' replied my uncle in a lower voice. "'There you are wrong, Axel. "'Look, look down there. "'I fancy I see a living creature similar to ourselves. "'It is a man.' "'I looked.' shaking my head incredulously. But though at first I was unbelieving, I had to yield to the evidence of my senses. In fact, at a distance of a quarter of a mile, leaning against the trunk of a gigantic cowrie, stood a human being, the proteus of those subterranean regions, a new son of Neptune, watching this countless herd of mastodons. Imanis pecoris custos, Imanior ipsae, that is, the shepherd of gigantic herbs, and huger still himself. Yes, truly, huger still himself. It was no longer a fossil being like those whose dried remains we had easily lifted up in the field of bones. It was a giant, able to control those monsters. In stature he was at least twelve feet high. His head, huge and unshapely as a buffalo's, was half hidden in the thick and tangled growth of his unkempt hair. It most resembled the mane of the primitive elephant. In his hand, he wielded with ease an enormous bow, a staff worthy of this shepherd of the geologic period. We stood petrified and speechless with amazement. But he might see us. We must fly. Come, do come, I said to my uncle, who for once allowed himself to be persuaded. In another quarter of an hour, our nimble heels had carried us beyond the reach of this horrible monster. And yet... Now that I can reflect quietly, now that my spirit has grown calm again, now that months have slipped by since this strange and supernatural meeting, what am I to think? What am I to believe? I must conclude that it was impossible that our senses had been deceived, that our eyes did not see what we supposed they saw. No human being lives in this subterranean world, no generation of men dwells in those inferior caverns of the globe, unknown to and unconnected with the inhabitants of the surface. It is absurd to believe it. I had rather admit that it may have been some animal whose structure resembled the human, some ape or baboon of the early geological ages, some protopithica or mesopithica, some early or middle-aged ape like that discovered by Mr. Larthit in the bone cave of Saint-Saul. But this creature surpassed in stature all the measurements known in modern paleontology. But that a man, a living man, and therefore whole generations, doubtless besides, should be buried there in the bowels of the earth, is impossible. However, we had left behind us the luminous forest, dumb with astonishment, overwhelmed and struck down with a terror which amounted to stupefaction. 
We kept running on for fear the horrible monster might be on our track. It was a flight, a fall, like that fearful pulling and dragging which is peculiar to nightmare. Instinctively we got back to the Liedenborg Sea, and I cannot say into what vagaries my mind would not have carried me, but for a circumstance which brought me back to practical matters. Although I was certain that we were now treading upon a soil not hitherto touched by our feet, I often perceived groups of rocks which reminded me of those about Port Goiben. Besides, this seemed to confirm the indications of the needle, and to show that we had, against our will, returned to the north of the Liedenbach Sea. Occasionally we felt quite convinced. Brooks and waterfalls were tumbling everywhere from the projections in the rocks. I thought I recognised the bed of Sertibrand, our faithful Hansbach, and the grotto in which I had recovered life and consciousness. Then a few paces further on, the arrangement of the cliffs, the appearance of an unrecognised stream, or the strange outline of a rock, came to throw me again into doubt. I communicated my doubts to my uncle. Like myself he hesitated. He could recognise nothing again amidst this monotonous scene. Evidently, said I, we have not landed again at our original starting point, but the storm has carried us a little higher, and if we follow the shore we shall find Port Goiben. If that is the case, it will be useless to continue our exploration, and we had better return to our raft. But, Axel, are you not mistaken? It is difficult to speak decidedly, uncle, for all these rocks are so very much alike. Yet I think I recognise the promontory at the foot of which Hans constructed our launch. We must be very near the little port, if indeed this is not it. I added, examining a creek, which I thought I recognised. No, Axel, we should at least find our own traces, and I see nothing. But I do see, I cried, darting upon an object lying in the sand. And I showed my uncle a rusty dagger which I had just picked up. Come, said he, had you this weapon with you? I? No, certainly, but you perhaps? Not that I am aware, said the professor. I never had this object in my possession. Well, this is strange. No, Axel, it's very simple. The Icelanders often wear arms of this kind. This must have belonged to Hans, and he has lost it. I shook my head. Hans had never had an object like this in his possession. Did it not belong to some pre-Adamite warrior, I cried, to some living man, contemporary with the huge cattle-driver? But no, this is not a relic of the Stone Age. It's not even of the Iron Age. This blade is steel. My uncle stopped me abruptly on my way to a dissertation which could have taken me a long way, and said coolly, "'Be calm, Axel, and reasonable. This dagger belongs to the sixteenth century. It is a poniard, such as gentlemen carried in their belts to give the coup de grace. Its origin is Spanish. It was never either yours, or mine, or the hunter's, nor did it belong to any of these human beings who may or may not inhabit this inner world.' See, it was never jagged like this by cutting men's throats. Its blade is coated with a rust neither a day nor a year nor a hundred years old. The professor was getting excited, according to his wont, and was allowing his imagination to run away with him. Axel, we are on the way towards the grand discovery. This blade has been left on the strand for from one to three hundred years, and has blunted its edge upon the rocks that fringe this subterranean sea. But it has not come alone— it has not twisted itself out of shape. Someone has been here before us. Yes, a man has. And who was that man? A man who has engraved his name somewhere with that dagger. That man wanted once more to mark the way to the centre of the earth. Let us look about. Look about. And, wonderfully interested, we peered along every high wall, 
peeping into the fissure which might open out into a gallery. And so we arrived at a place where the shore was much narrowed. Here the sea came to lap the foot of the steep cliff, leaving a passage no wider than a couple of yards. Between two boldly projecting rocks appeared the mouth of a dark tunnel. There, upon a granite slab, appeared two mysterious graven letters, half eaten away by time. They were the initials of the bold and daring traveller. A.S., shouted my uncle, Arna Sacknusem, Arna Sacknusem everywhere! End of chapter 39 Recorded in Nottingham, England, by Alex Foster, on the 28th of January, 2006. www.alexfoster.me.uk